Everybody loves a good underdog story. I'm a huge sports fan, and so I really love when the underdog comes out on top. What are some of your favorite underdog stories, especially in the world of sports? Do you remember when Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson? Now look, Iron Mike is the champ, but that was cool to watch. Remember when Holly Holm knocked out rowdy Ronda Rousey? Nobody expected that. Do you remember the Red Sox coming back from 3-0 against the Yankees? Becky, you remember that? That was Kurt Schilling's bloody sock year. Nobody in the history of baseball had ever come down 3-0 in a seven-game series, and nobody's done it since, but the Red Sox did it. Do you remember LeBron coming back from 3-1 in the 2016 NBA Finals? First championship for the city of Cleveland in, like, I don't know, centuries. In that same year, Leicester City, this little kind of nowheresville podunk kind of soccer team in the Premier League in England, they had almost been relegated in 2015 to the league below the Premier League because they weren't playing well. They came into the 2016 season as a 5,000 to 1 underdog to win the Premier League. And guess what? They won the Premier League at 5,000 to one. That means if you put 100 bucks on Leicester City to win the Premier League at the beginning of 2016, you would have taken home a cool half million. But what would you do if you knew the underdog was the surefire bet? Like if you knew the Red Sox are down 3-0, they're going to come back and beat the Yankees. If you knew that the U.S. was going to beat the Soviet Union in the 1980 miracle on ice, thank you very much. If you knew that LeBron was going to come back from 3-1. If you knew for sure that Leicester City was going to win the Premier League, what do you do? You bet on the underdog. All your chips in the middle, everything you got, you bet on the underdog. There's a story in uh, Luke chapter 14. Jesus is is at a ruler of the Pharisee's house on a Sabbath day having a meal. During that meal, a man with something called dropsy comes in. Now, dropsy is a swelling of the limbs usually related to water retention. It's not usually the primary illness, but it's caused by another uh, difficult or grave illness. And it's very, very painful. This man likely wasn't invited to the meal. Perhaps he heard that Jesus was there and maybe Jesus could do something. Jesus looks at his friends, the Pharisees at the table, and he says, guys, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They have no answer. They remain silent. He says, like, guys, if you had an ox fall into a pit, are you not going to get him out? If your son falls into a pit, are you not going to get him out on the Sabbath? They had no answer because here they are trying to trap Jesus once again. Jesus shakes his head grabs the man with dropsy, heals him, and sends him away. Then he looks at the other guests at the meal, and he says to the guests, Look, when you're invited to a meal, don't sit at the seat of honor. Let me explain. In first century Palestine and in Jewish culture, when you gathered for a meal, people would sit at a U-shaped couch. And the seat of honor was right here at the base of the U. That's your number one guy. That's usually the host. Now, just to his right was the number two, and just to his left was the number three. And then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, all the way around. Now, 
What Jesus says to his fellow guests is like, look, if you sit in the two spot and you're really a nine guy, the host has to come in and say, excuse me, you've honored yourself too much. You need to move down to the nine spot. And it's embarrassing for you and it's embarrassing for the host. And in a shame honor culture like that, that would have been a very, very big deal, very uh, inappropriate for you to take that place of honor. Jesus says, hey, how about this? Sit in the 11 spot, because if you sit in the 11 spot, there's nowhere to go but up. And so nobody looks bad if they move you from the 11 to the 8, or the 11 to the 3, or the 11 to the 2. Just kind of gives some instructions regarding table manners. Then he looks at his host and he says, look, when you throw a party, when you have a meal, don't invite your closest circle of friends. Don't invite those who can uplift your social status. He says, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, people who you know cannot repay you. And he says, if you do that or when you do that, you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. In other words, you'll be repaid in the life to come, even though you might not be repaid in this life. That's a little bit of an awkward conversation because Jesus is telling his host something that, you know, his host probably, you know, already knew. And at the very least, you don't kind of instruct your meal host, right? That was not uh, kind of the most appropriate thing to do what Jesus did. And so somebody at the meal tries to change the subject. They kind of throw out this, you know, hey, let's let's just shift over here and talk about something else. Let's distract everybody. And what this individual says is, well, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. What does that even mean? Jesus kind of ignores uh, this man's distraction comment, and he tells a parable. And it's a parable about God's eschatological banquet. Eschatology is the study of things to come, the end times. And he says, look, one day God is going to throw a big banquet in the sky. He's going to invite people to his table. Here's what that's going to look like. He says, a man was hosting a banquet, so he sent out his servant to invite people. Those people said, absolutely, I'll be there. And he said, all right, great. So he started to prepare the meal, everything was ready, and he sent another invitation to his guests and said, all right, everything is ready, show up. And they came back with excuse after excuse of why they can't show up. Now the host of the banquet was pretty angry, as well he should have been. Those guys said they'd be there. It's kind of like RSVPing yes to a wedding and then no call, no show. And there's just a plate with your name placard on there sitting there. It kind of is embarrassing for everybody in this culture, exponentially more so. So the man says, what am I going to do with all this food? I mean, it's ready to go. And he says to his servant, he goes, go out in the lanes and the streets of the town, invite some people to come enjoy this food. And the servant says, look, I already did it. We have still more space. So he says, okay, now you go out into the highways and hedges. Go outside of town to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, to the destitute and bring them in, compel them to come in so that my house may be full. In Luke 14, four things happen over the course of 24 verses. Jesus heals a man with dropsy, talks a little bit about first century table etiquette. He talks a little bit about who to invite to your table. And then he talks about God's great banquet in the sky. Now, I've been thinking about this this week. How in the world are these connected? I mean, this is all over the course of a single meal that Jesus is instructing. Those who have gathered, the guests, his host. He tells a parable about God's great banquet in the sky. 
it's all connected. It's all one conversation, but they seem kind of disjointed to me. Something dawned on me this week. Instead of considering these four events in the way that they happened, can we reverse them? And let's consider them in reverse order. If we start with the parable of God's eschatological banquet, his great banquet in the sky, and we understand what Jesus is teaching there, the implications and the principles that we derive from that one parable will help us understand what it is Jesus is saying to his host and his fellow guests, what he's saying to the man with dropsy and the Pharisees there, and ultimately what he's saying to us. So let's start with that parable. The parable begins in Luke chapter 14, verse 16. If you have your Bible, open it uh, to Luke chapter 14, verse 16, use your device. And as always, the scripture will be up here on the screen. Jesus said to him, that's the man that kind of threw out this distraction comment. He says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready. Spoiler alert, uh, the man in this parable represents God. God, our Heavenly Father, is the host of this grand kingdom banquet, and he is extending an invitation through his servant, and that servant is Jesus. See, God sent his servant Jesus to invite a group of people to his banquet. Now, I need you to know that back then, there were actually two invitations that went out for a banquet. The first was a, will you come? And then those who were able to come would say, yes, I will come. And then the host would subsequently prepare food for the amount of RSVPs that he received. And when the food was ready, he would say, all right, now the food is ready. You come on. So when these individuals begin to offer excuses for why they can't show up to this banquet, there's a number of problems here, aren't they? Aren't there? Because they've already said yes. They've already received their first invitation and the host is preparing food based on that RSVP. The second thing is in this particular culture, and we'll talk about this more uh, in a little while, that when you don't show up, even though you've said yes, it shames you and it shames your host. This is a very big deal in a culture that's based entirely on shame and honor. So when these individuals that have already said, yes, I'll attend the banquet, start to give excuses, this is a bad deal. Now, I wanna read the excuses straight from Luke chapter 14. Listen very, very closely to what they are. But they all alike began to make excuses. That's verse 18. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. They're pulling out last minute. This is not just a polite, please excuse me. This is a, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. And here is my excuse. Now, the listeners there, the Pharisees especially, would have heard Deuteronomy chapter 20. 
echoes of it, at least. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God gives instructions to the nation of Israel when they're about to go into a battle. Listen to what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 5. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man dedicate it. Verse 6. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who is betrothed to a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man take her. So, these are legitimate excuses for not entering into battle. Why? Lest you die. <laughs> that phrase repeated multiple times in Deuteronomy chapter 20. God says, these are legitimate reasons to not engage, lest you die. But this is not battle, is it, friends? This is a meal at somebody's house. These are not legitimate excuses. They shame the host and they shame the individuals who are giving those excuses. And they're using Scripture to defend themselves. To defend their inappropriate behavior. So then the master of the banquet sends out a second invitation. The servant came and reported these things to his master. That's verse 21. Then the master of the house became angry, as well he should have, said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Pay close attention to that phrase. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. So then a third invitation is extended. The master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Why won't they taste it? Because they didn't want to, right? Made illegitimate excuses. So Jesus is helping his listeners and helping us understand God's kingdom. He says God's kingdom is kind of like this. A man is going to host a banquet. He sends out an invitation. His guests reply with a hooray, I'll be there. He gets the food ready and says, all right, everybody's ready. And then he starts getting excuses. They say no. They drop out. And the man who's hosting the banquet says, but I still have food and I still have seats at my table. So expand my invitation. Extend it a little greater to the streets and lanes of the city. These are not just uh, my close friends and those I know really well. Expand it even greater. And his servant, who's extended the invitation on his behalf, says, look, I already did that and we still got room. So then the master of the banquet says, well, now expand it even further, like kind of a concentric circle to the highways and hedges outside of the city. This is not just the poor, crippled, the blind, the lame, but outside of the city would be those so poor and destitute that they couldn't even find a place within the city walls to live. He says, go invite them, compel them to come in and sit down at my banquet table. What a cool picture of God's grace and God's kingdom and His invitation to all to come, no matter where you're from, poor, crippled, blind, lame, destitute, everybody is welcome at God's table. Now, 
We've been doing this thing on, on Mondays. We're calling it a preaching collab. We get six, eight, ten of us in a room, male, female, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and different perspectives on the Scripture. We do the Lectio Divina, and we kind of talk about the Scripture together. We make observations. And one individual on Monday asked this question, and this is the critical question for understanding the passage. Why do they have to be compelled? Because compelled means forced, right? It means, it, it means that, that they're that almost, you feel like the, the master is begging. These are people that are so poor and destitute that they can hardly afford to feed themselves. And we can assume that this is a pretty lavish banquet that this host is throwing. Why do they have to be compelled? If, if, if I was in need of food, if I was so destitute, I was living outside of the city and someone said, come, have a feast at my house, you would not have to compel me. I'd be there right away. But the master tells the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel them. Why do they have to be compelled? Now, I don't usually do this, but I want to read an extended passage from Joel Green's commentary on the book of Luke, specifically his commentary regarding this passage in Luke chapter 14. And Joel Green explains in such a cogent way why people had to be compelled. Listen very carefully to Joel Green's answer because the key to understanding the parable and the rest of the passage lies here. Joel Green writes, First, this was a world in which social status and social stratification were vital considerations in the structuring of life. With one's status based on the social estimation of one's relative honor, that is, on the perception of those around a person regarding his prestige. For example, where one sat at a meal vis-a-vis -vis the host was a public advertisement of one's status. Remember, we talked about that a minute ago with the U-shaped couch. Joel Green continues, as a consequence, the matter of seating arrangements was carefully attended. And in this agonistic society, one might presume to claim a more honorable seat with the hope that it might be granted. What is more, because meals were used to publicize and reinforce social hierarchy, invitations to meals were themselves carefully considered so as to allow one's table, only one's own inner circle, or only those persons whose presence at one's table would either enhance or at least preserve one's social position. So here's the first thing Joel Green says. It's all about social status here. You invite people to your banquet who will preserve your social status or enhance your social status. You don't invite anybody below you. That's the first thing he says. Listen to the second. Second, central to the political stability of the empire was the ethics of reciprocity, a gift and obligation system that tied every person from the emperor in Rome to the child in the most distant province to an intricate web of social relations. Apart from certain relations within the family unit and discussions of ideal friendship, gifts by unwritten definition were never free. 
but were given and received with either the explicit or implicit strings attached. Expectations of reciprocity were naturally extended to the table. So to accept an invitation was to obligate oneself to extend a comparable one, a practice that circumscribed the list of those to whom one might extend an invitation. The powerful and privileged would not ordinarily think to invite the poor to their meals, for this would, one, possibly endanger the social status of the host, that makes sense, two, be a wasted invitation, since the self-interest of the elite could never be served by, by an invitation that could not be reciprocated, and three, listen closely, ensue an embarrassment for the poor who could not reciprocate, and therefore would be required by social protocols to decline the invitation. Now, for some of you, as you listened, your mind just went like this, as mine did when I read Joel Green's commentary. For others of us, let me kind of break it down into two key points. One, social status. It's about your invite list. Who's at your table and who, seats, who is seated where? That was so important in this culture. Two, was the notion of reciprocity. If you extend an invite to someone to come sit at your table, they were obligated, culturally speaking, to invite you to a banquet at their home of the same level, a comparable invitation. So they had to be compelled. They wouldn't typically be invited to a banquet like this. They would be so outside of social status and in a different social strata than the host of the banquet, this would, this would, they would be crossing lines, the poor, the destitute, the, the crippled, the blind, the lame. In that society, they would be crossing lines that no one else would cross. Second, they would be obligated to return the favor and throw a comparable party in their home and invite their host. But this is not a banquet in first century Palestine. This is the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom where all are welcome. A kingdom where the king, the host of the banquet, expects nothing in return. He just wants you to come. That's called grace, by the way. A kingdom where those with no status are given status. A kingdom where the humble are exalted. This is God's great banquet in the sky. This is the kingdom of God. In other words, in God's kingdom, the underdog is always the surefire bet. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, those with no status, those with no influence, those with no money, those who are forgotten about or marginalized, those that we see through on the streets, the underdogs are the surefire bet in God's kingdom. They will always find a seat at His table. So now, we come back to our original question. What would you do if you knew the underdog was a surefire bet? You push all your chips in the middle on the underdog. You bet on the underdog. So if we know the end, 
that the underdog is going to be exalted, that the underdog is going to win. In the here and now, we start to bet on the underdog. So what does that mean? Well, let's go back to our list. It means that when you host a banquet in your home, Jesus says, don't invite, invite your circle of friends, those who can enhance your social status, those who can preserve your social status. He says to his host, you invite those who have been forgotten about, marginalized, ostracized, go into the highways and hedges, invite them. They can't repay you in this world. They can't reciprocate, remember, but you will be repaid in the world to come. What does it mean to bet on the underdog? It means that I don't need to take the seat of honor here and now. I can take the 11 seat in that U-shaped couch. I can stand back in the background in order to give space for others in the here and now because I know that the underdog is going to win in the long term. I can put all my chips in the middle for the underdog. And what does it mean for the man with dropsy? Well, he too would have been ostracized, forgotten about. He would have been one of those destitute or crippled. Jesus wraps him up, hugs him, heals him, and sends him on his way in order to broadcast that that great banquet in the sky is not yet totally here, but it is in large part already here. Those seats are open. That food is ready. You can bet on the underdog now because in god's kingdom the underdog is always the surefire bet now what does that mean for you what does that mean for me first i would tell you that if you're the underdog in god's kingdom you're the surefire bet there are some in our society it's not always the poor the crippled the blind the lame although it is sometimes those But those who are not given a seat at a table, women are underrepresented in Canadian corporate culture. The poor are often forgotten about. We give influence to celebrities, and so those without fame don't have the same level of influence. They're the underdogs. Those who uh, maybe don't have a high level of ability, intellectual or physical, those who aren't really great in social situations, a little awkward, whatever it is, you might feel like you're the underdog and I'm here to tell you there is hope because you are the surefire bet. In God's kingdom, you get the seat of honor. In God's kingdom, you are invited. At God's table, you are fed until you are full. That day is coming. It may not feel like it now, but if you're the underdog, there is hope. And one day, one day, you'll get the seat at the table. Now, for some of us, In this society, in this culture, in this world, we're not really the underdog, are we? (laughs) We're kind of the host. I hate to tell you, but I am white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, upper-middle-class, able-bodied male. (laughs) I've got all the marks of privilege written all over me. And so what this passage says to me 
is that I've got to move aside to give the underdog a seat. Frankly, I would just tell you, I haven't been good at that. This passage was especially convicting for me this week. I need to pay more attention to those in our society who are seen as the underdog. I need to move aside and give them influence in my life. I need to invite them to that metaphorical table. It's especially convicting to me. And, 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 if, and if you're kind of aligned with the host in this story, the host of this meal that Jesus is at, I would invite you to do the same. Look for those in your life that need a seat at that table. They want influence, but they need somebody to open the door for them. They want to sit in a place of honor, but they need somebody to say, hey, here's the seat. And it's not just about inviting people to your home for a banquet, although that could be it. But it's in your place of work. It's in your social circles. It's in your uh, sports that you play and your hobbies that you engage in. It's with your neighbors. It's, it's everywhere you go. Because if you know the underdog is a surefire bet, you shove all your chips in the middle right now. My encouragement to you this week, be keep your eye out for the underdog. See if you can open up a seat of honor for that person in the circles that you run in. And if you're the underdog, you may feel sidelined. You may feel like you don't have influence. But know that one day when God's kingdom comes in its entirety on earth, just as it is in heaven, you will be given the seat of honor. You'll be the one who walks off the field, the winner, because of God's great and extravagant grace for you.